Well, welcome to you all, wherever you are, uh, to this special edition of Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, it takes place on a fairly momentous day in Britain, at least, because actually, as we record this, and this is a recorded uh, uh, interview, um, the British Parliament is voting on an amendment to the King's speech, which has been put down by the Scottish National Party. And that is calling for an immediate ceasefire, echoing very much the call that has come from uh, the United Nations, uh, 700-odd NGOs, uh, two-thirds of member states of the General Assembly, uh, from religious leaders from the Pope to the, to the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that vote takes place, it's probably taking place as we speak, um, and even though it will be old news um, by the time many of you see this, we will be discussing it tonight because uh, the, although Britain um, is, is just one European uh, country, uh, it has a, a historic um, a role uh, in Israel-Palestine, as we'll talk about uh, later with uh, Sir Vincent, because uh, we will be talking in a bit more detail about the Balfour Project itself. But this is a uh, also a day which has seen um, an Israeli military uh, incursion into the biggest hospital in Gaza City. Uh, and uh, it has also been a day when um, the uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has said that uh, both the South African government and others want much more urgent action from the International Criminal Court and will be uh, referring Israel to the International Criminal Court for uh, uh, claims that, uh, that that country's military has broken international humanitarian law, the Geneva Conventions, uh, and the Rome Statute 19, all of which we can talk about. Um, we're very, very pleased uh, to be joined today by Sir Vincent Keane, and um, very pleased to have you, Sir Vincent. Welcome. Uh, Sir Vincent was uh, British Consul General to Jerusalem, from 2010 to 2014. And that also made him the de facto ambassador from this country, Britain, to the occupied Palestinian territories during that same period. And he joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office back in 1975. He previously served in Tripoli as Her Majesty's ambassador to Libya between 2006 and 2010. And before that, he was British High Commissioner to Malta from 2002 to 2006. He was appointed a Knight Commander of the Royal Victorian Order in 2005, and he's an officer of the Order of St. John. And of course, Sir Vincent is also Vice Chair of the Balfour Project Charitable Organization. As I say, Sir Vincent, thank you very much for joining us. Today, um, the Balfour Project has sent a letter to the Prime Minister, and this is an advance of the vote in Parliament today, tonight uh, or today, um, it was signed by a significant number of members of Parliament, uh, of peers from all parties. Uh, and it was very clear, it set out the reasons why uh, Britain should support the call for immediate ceasefire uh, in Gaza. Um, and I just wonder, uh, I mean, there's been quite a lot of media coverage of it, but of course there'll be plenty of people who haven't seen it. I wonder if you could begin, but just by summarising uh, what is being said in the letter uh, and give us some idea of the extent of support that you found for it in both houses of the British Parliament. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, and thank you very much for inviting me this evening. Um, the letter is signed by around about 120 members of Parliament in both houses, uh, peers and uh, members of the House of Commons, it was the initiative of um, Baroness Shaz Sheehan, a uh, Liberal Democrat, and uh, the collection of names to um, align themselves with the contents of the letter was a joint operation by uh, CABU, the Council for Advancement of Our British Understanding and, and ourselves in the Balfour Project. Um, I'll read out, if I may, the main asks in, in the letter. Um, and then we'll talk about international law. Um, they are an immediate humanitarian ceasefire by all belligerents. We have to remember there are the Houthi and uh, Hezbollah, as well as the uh, Israeli army and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Second, the release of all hostages, which is a key issue for Israel and a key issue for the UK. 
because there are British hostages held illegally by Hamas. Third, the presence of independent international observers on the ground in Israel and Gaza. This issue is too big and too ugly to be left to Palestinians and Israelis to monitor, sort out, assess the criminal activity. Number four, providing unrestricted aid to civilians in Gaza. Fuel, clean water, food, medical help and supplies. And we know that at the moment there is a very small amount of fuel available for UN vehicles, but no fuel allowed by Israel for such things as desalination to produce clean water or hospital uh, generators to enable neonatal clinics and other aspects of the hospitals to operate. And we also know that the hospitals are decimated. There were 35 functioning hospitals in Gaza. We're down to less than half that and only one in Gaza City, which is the main, uh, the main populated area. Number five, protecting the human rights of both Israelis and Palestinians, including guaranteeing the right of those forced out of their homes in the north of Gaza to return home. That's a key That's issue. 70% of the population of Gaza are refugees. They're refugees from 1948, the children of children of the refugees from 1948. They fear a continuation of the Nakba, not a second Nakba, but a continuation of the Nakba of 1948. And the last part, which is a, more about the future, that the UK government should work with partners for a definitive resolution of the conflict, realizing the Palestinian right to self-determination and mutual security for both peoples. And there I'd say that the rather crude experiment of Prime Minister Netanyahu, which is to impose Israeli security on the occupied people in Gaza, East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank has failed. And I believe that he has actually misled the Israeli people into thinking that leaving it to the army and the police and the intelligence services to maintain Israeli national security with no regard for the rights of the Palestinians and their own security was a mistake. It's a mistake that's been going on for decades, but this tragic episode, the terrorism of Hamas and the retaliation of the Israeli army proves that you cannot maintain safety simply by imposing your own security on another people. Mm -hmm. Thank you, for Sir Vincent. I mean, looking at the letter and looking at the signatories, um, the spread uh, from across all parties and none was very striking. Um, people from the Liberal Democrat Party, from the Scottish National Party, from the Labour Party, from the Conservative Party, uh, the Earl of Sandwich pops up. So a, a, a truly um, extraordinary um, uh, cross-section of opinion in Parliament getting behind this letter. I mean, can, can you, I mean, because we don't really know yet, we'll know very shortly how this vote actually went. But even as seems most likely, the government gets its way and so does the uh, leader of the opposition. Um, tell me, do you, do you think that this, this body of opinion, given its uh, expertise and breadth, um, could actually move again? Uh, because there may not be a ceasefire as far as the British and Americans and some European countries uh, are concerned now, but there might be in a few days' time. So um, how influential do you think some, some of the people are that have signed? And perhaps you could mention some of them. Yep. The timing is important because of this vote in, in the Commons tonight. Uh, the letter issued at uh, 9 a.m. today, uh, uh, Wednesday, to uh, Mr. Sunak, and to our new Foreign Secretary, uh, David Cameron, uh, and to uh, the Minister for the Middle East, Lord Ahmed. Um, 
the I, what I would say about the the signatories is that they are moved by the humanitarian crisis. They are moved by the fact that the uh, <clears throat> Hamas uh, uh, terrorist attack of uh, the 7th of October has provoked, unleashed a retaliation which we have never seen. Uh, there have been several Gaza conflicts, as we know, um, going back to Castled and before uh, to 2008. But nothing on this scale in terms of Israeli army intervention, uh, and I would say indiscriminate intervention in terms of bombing. We've heard an IDF spokesman talking about damage rather than precision. Uh, we've, talk, we've heard their defense minister talking about a complete siege, withholding fuel, withholding water, withholding food, all the things that are in this letter as demands uh, on a humanitarian basis. And there is a risk of um, communicable diseases, contagious diseases spreading because there is starvation in Gaza. Let's make no mistake about that. Coming back to who signed, um, it's a fairly uh, mixed bag. Um, not as many Conservative MPs as uh, one would have wished. And I think that's partly because of the whipping process which may mean that the vote goes uh, the government's way tonight. Um, on the Labour side, there is a protocol uh, procedure which says if you are in the front bench uh, in the shadow cabinet of the, uh, of the future potential government of, of the UK or could become a minister of state, a minister, junior minister in those ranks, then you are not uh, normally expected to sign. So we're looking at backbenchers more than at frontbenchers. We're, we're looking at the people who don't have a specific task, um, but have an opinion and have a conscience. And I think it is people of conscience who have signed. Added to that, uh, you mentioned uh, His Holiness the Pope, uh, mm. His Grace the Archbishop, and the UN Secretary General, and all, all the others that you listed, President Macron. Um, who share this opinion that what needs to happen is more than a pause, we need a stop. Uh, and the reason for that is essentially that in order to get the fuel in and get it to the places that need it, in the south, the middle and the north of Gaza, it's a small area, but the roads have been damaged, if not destroyed, by bombing, uh, getting those fuel tankers in is important, essential, if we're going to stop uh, that wave of, of disease, of cholera and other other plagues, which which could come our way very soon, because the population of, of Gaza has been weakened over the yeah. last month, over the last five yes. weeks. And so, Vincent, and we'll get on to this, because, uh, of course, you know, as you were just mentioning there, we are possibly hundreds of thousands of people in central Gaza and northern Gaza uh, and with a pause, uh, they're very unlikely to be receiving the aid that they they need. Um, and and absolutely, I mean the 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 scenes we're all seeing and hearing about in terms of lack of water, lack of food, lack of basic supplies, lack of uh, lack of fuel to to actually get the water to be pumped out. All of these basic things are not there. But look, what I really wanted to ask you really um, right now is about the Balfour project itself, because of course you know. Uh, Balfour is not exactly a popular name amongst many Palestinians for various good historical reasons, but there is a, there is a, um, a, a, a very sensible rationale behind your choice of uh, Balfour, which I wonder if you could let us know about, um, and also just tell us something about you know what you're about as a project um, and perhaps who's involved and 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 how it, and how it is. I mean, you've had this enormous influence today in terms of getting this letter and bring all these people together. Um, but tell us something about um, the Balfour Project, if you will. I certainly will. Um, the name originated from a conversation um, between a few people in the UK, British people, wondering how Britain would mark the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. So 2017, 100 years on. Um, and as you have said, as you've implied, there, there is no particular affection for uh, Balfour in, in the uh, 
activities of the Balfour project, but what we wanted to do, and we are doing, is illustrate a rather, uh, and shed light on, a rather dark corner of British imperial history. Uh, a promise in, 20, in 1917 to several people, a promise to the Sharif of Mecca that uh, Palestine would be part of the Arab nation that would arise after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, a promise to the Zionists in the UK that um, a homeland for the Jews in Palestine would occur, would, would come to be, and it did, and it's become a state, um, which Britain uh, recognized in 1950. Um, and there's one thing to say about our mandate period. Uh, we acquired the mandate uh, from the League of Nations in around about 1923, having been the military power in, in, in Palestine since 1917, to lead Palestine to independence. That was the mission. But we added in the Balfour Declaration. Those two are not compatible and proved to be incompatible. So yet again, we were frankly being rather deceitful. One of my colleagues, a trustee called Peter Shambrook, has written a book called A Policy of Deceit, which is the cover-up of the promises that we made to the Arabs, which we then left behind and made promises to the, to the Jewish community in the UK, um, which frankly were deceitful. And mm -hmm. that is our legacy. Coming to, the, to, to now, we're not just focused on the past. What we want to do is to demonstrate that our imperial mistakes in mandate Palestine up to 1948, when we effectively prevented the emergence of a state of Palestine, that that gives us a responsibility, the British people, civil society, parliament, government, a responsibility to do better. And one way in which that can be done is by giving a lead to international action to lead to a, a situation where the Palestinian people, for the first time, have the right to self-determination, including the option, if they choose, of statehood. Mm. And the last thing I'll say is that we are very keen in that regard to change the mindset of our government, hmm. forget what stripe the government is, whatever the government is this year or a year from now, uh, after our general election, we want our government to be conscious of our past and present responsibilities. And by changing the mindset, I mean recognizing as the United Kingdom, the state of Palestine on the pre-June 1967 borders, which means Gaza as an integral part of Palestine, not separated uh, from uh, the West Bank by, by well, the barrier that is currently there, i.e. the ban by Israel on communication between the West Bank and, and, and Gaza. We can't change the geography, but we can change the way in which, uh, uh, or we can work to change the way in which Palestine is represented on the world stage. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a little bit earlier about the ICC and the, the International Criminal Court. Um, it is important that Palestine is accredited as a state in order to have the ICC look into these alleged war crimes by Hamas, by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, by others. Uh, but Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, said because Palestine is not a state, the ICC has no locus. That's <laughs> wrong. Mm. And the, the Palestinian Authority entered the ICC realm in 2015, and Britain did not object to that. And we, we hear from Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the ICC, who happens to be British, and who went to Rafah a couple of weeks ago, that the ICC is investigating not only the past alleged war crimes of 2021, 2014, and so on, but the current uh, alleged war crimes now. Yeah, I mean, actually, as a historical aside, uh, Vincent, I'm, where I'm sitting is literally um, a mile away from the village of Palestine in uh, near Andover in Hampshire. Um, yes. That's reinforcing those those British antecedents because uh, this was a piece of land that essentially at the end of the 
First World War, when British troops were coming back from Transjordan, was given to them by Prime Minister Lloyd George as part of his Homes Fit for Heroes uh, promise. Mm. I mean, that's just a historical aside, but it just does tell you that you know this country has had a very long and controversial involvement in the region. Uh, and you do so often, sadly, come across a lot of people who have very little understanding of it and therefore um, go on to make some terrible uh, blunders in terms of their policy commitments, arguably. Now, I just on that, on that, I should just say that, and this won't be news by the time it comes out, but we have learned that there have been two front bench resignations so far uh, from the Labour front bench, uh, Yasmin Qureshi, the Shadow Woman, Women and Equalities Minister, and MP for Bolton South, and Afsal Khan, the Shadow Minister for Exports. I mean, we are looking at a, um, a, at a major rebellion within the op main opposition party, but others too. Uh, but what I wanted to, to get on to um, now is this central argument that seems to have been resolved in most other member states of the United Nations. And by the, in fact, it's if you look at the call for a ceasefire, as we've said, it's uh, been backed by multiple UN agencies. As you say in your letter, nearly 700 NGOs, Pope Francis, the Archbishop of Canterbury, 250 British lawyers, including eminent Jewish lawyers, the 120 countries that voted in favour of the UN General Assembly motion. And in a poll, the last poll, which I think was on October 19, 76% of the British public. Now, I wonder if the poll was to, was to take would be taken today, whether that would be even more. One kind of suspects that it probably would. Um, but in Britain, we have both the Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition opposing this call for a ceasefire. Now, I know that the uh, Leader of the Opposition has toughened up the language um, and there's been much more criticism of the way that the Israeli army are uh, behaving themselves in Gaza. Um, but both both the government and main opposition are still calling for humanitarian pauses as opposed to a ceasefire. Now, you touched on some of it, but, I mean, why, why is it that the majority of global opinion in terms of member states, for sure, and we've just been through all the different... Uh, arguments. Why is it that, that 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 some countries, the US, Britain, Germany, a handful of others, are still sticking to just humanitarian pauses? And what essentially is the difference? Yeah. Um, it depends a bit who you talk to on this. Um, my take is that in order to address the humanitarian plight of the people of Gaza and to make it more likely that those poor hostages, uh, mainly Israeli, but of many nationalities, can be released safely, which is a, an obligation on, on Hamas, which they are not fulfilling, uh, then a ceasefire is what is needed. The argument against a ceasefire seems to be that it would enable Hamas to regroup and possibly to repeat the terrorist action of the 7th of October. I find that unrealistic. Uh, first of all, uh, Hamas is under severe pressure from the Israeli army. Um, and therefore, there doesn't seem to me to be uh, a, a likelihood of a recurrence uh, of, this, of, this, of this terrorist act. Um, and secondly, the idea that stopping the bombing um, should be for a short period of time, of hours, days, rather than for a sustained period. It, it argues against the, uh, the need uh, of the moment. And the need of the moment, I forgive me for repeating myself, but the need of the moment is to prevent communicable diseases, uh, contagious diseases, which uh, are round the corner. Uh, I was listening recently to uh, Dr. Nick Maynard, who's a cancer surgeon, who's worked in Gaza, now back in the UK. And he said, quite rightly, nobody is being treated for cancer in Gaza today. Nobody is being treated for diabetes. Women are having to give birth without hospital support. And these contagious diseases like cholera are around the corner. And because 
the Palestinian people have been weakened by five weeks of starvation, five weeks without any influx of goods. And they used to have 500 trucks a day go in. We've had about 750 in total in the last five weeks, two days worth, you might say, over five weeks. And, and Gaza has not been able to sustain itself for a long time. So it needs that importation of goods. That seems to me to outweigh any argument about a ceasefire needing to be agreed by both sides. I also think that Hamas, I don't know this because I don't talk to Hamas, but I sense that Hamas would accept a ceasefire and I trust, I trust, I don't know this, but would abide by it for as long as Israel did. We can't know until it happens. Mm. But this humanitarian pause idea, frankly, I would not call these four-hour stoppages in bombing in prescribed areas as a humanitarian pause. I think that's a misnomer. What Biden and Sunak and perhaps Starmer are talking about is something longer and better than that. But there, in my head, can be nothing better than a sustained ceasefire, which would lead, I hope, to a negotiated outcome to this war, which is what is needed. Well, I think that sets it out pretty clearly. Um, and I think perhaps if we could if we could turn now to international law, because um, after the Hamas attacks on 7th of October, uh, the response was very clear from Prime Minister Netanyahu and also from the Israeli military that uh, they were going to effectively reshape what was going to happen was going to be a reshaping of um, the Middle East in many respects. And also it was made quite clear to anybody who was prepared to listen uh, that the IDF were going to be given a free hand really to take all necessary, all necessary action uh, as they decide uh, in Gaza. Um, and as that was happening, um, because uh, so many uh, 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 people were so appalled at what they were seeing coming out from the kibbutzes and from communities in southern Israel. Uh, there were various political leaders, especially in this country, in America, who effectively said, well, yes, uh, they, uh, the Israelis can, they, they can go ahead and do what they need to do. And in fact, of course, we recall the leader of the Labour Party, Sakir Starmer, got into immediate trouble when he, say, when he said that it was perfectly OK for the Israelis to cut off water and energy and food. Uh, and he, of course, he, he backtracked on that later, but that was when the damage had been done. So we've subsequently, of course, heard um, Western leaders uh, saying that Israel must act in accordance with international law and with the Gen Geneva Conventions. Um, they've certainly tightened up the language uh, in the past two or three days in both the US and Britain saying, well, uh, you know, the, 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 the prosecution of this war must be carried out with far more regard to civilians. But time and time again, when various, perhaps perhaps they feel as though they're not really, uh, they, they're out of their depth. Um, but, but when they're challenged directly on specific acts of alleged illegality, so many of these politicians say, we can't provide a running commentary. Um, and so, you know, it's when when you have UN agencies, when you have um, Médecins Sans Frontières, all of these NGOs pointing to quite um, obvious acts of illegality. Um, what what is is are you clear that Israel has been in breach of international law? And if that is the case, I mean, you mentioned the ICC, but what should the consequences be? Because so many people feel that. Really, this is the this is the worst. But when these things have happened before, there never have been any real consequences. Hmm. I think there's a there's two sets of war crimes um, that I see. To answer your question directly, war crimes committed by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad um, before, but also particularly on on the seventh of October, and you've described the scenes in the kibbutzes and nobody can do anything except condemn that utterly a murder was committed and following on from murder uh, the abduction the kidnapping 
of 200, 240 hostages, some military, mainly civilian, and now being held. Uh, we've seen the release of four, I think, out of 245 or 250. And I repeat, there are some Brits in that mix. They should come out. There is no excuse for holding them. The second, and I'll be blunt, the second set of war crimes, I regard what the Israeli defense minister said and did in terms of a complete siege on Gaza. That's collective punishment in the jargon. That means penalizing 2.3 million people for the activities of a small minority. That is not legal. It is not legal. And it is something which has continued for the last five weeks. It needs to stop. This fuel that we've talked about needs to go in. The lorries that will carry the fuel need to go in, not from Rafah, where a few crawl in now, but from a place called Kerem Shalom, which is the link, the freight link between Gaza and Israel. And the passage for people in the north of Gaza to through Erez, which I've been through a few times myself, um, doing my consul general job to get into Gaza, that needs to reopen to enable medical cases to be taken to East Jerusalem, but in some cases into Israel in the better days, to get medical treatment not available in Gaza, but needed to save lives. That's what needs to happen. Now, coming back to consequences, uh, let's be frank, there are sterner consequences for a non-state actor, again, to use the jargon, Hamas or another group, than there are for states. There seems to be uh, a, well, the French would call it a laissez-passer, uh, <laughs> a, a, a passport for yeah. states, particularly states that are allied to the West. Now, that too is not good it's bad and it is ultimately to the detriment of upholding a rule of law upholding a rules-based system which our government and the american government and others say they want to see and we are accused by what's called the global south many of those who voted as you said for uh, palestinian statehood in the UN General Assembly and voted for a ceasefire in the UN General Assembly, they look at our approach to the Ukraine-Russia conflict and to this one, and they see daylight. They see daylight between the two approaches when the annexation by uh, Putin of Crimea and other parts of Eastern uh, Ukraine subsequently that is in breach of the self-same laws as the annexation of East Jerusalem by Israel and the de facto annexation conducted by the settlement project in, in the West Bank. So we are accused as the West, UK, US, Germany, others, of double standards. And it's very hard to rebut that argument. Mm. I wonder if I could just, um, because we... we uh, also this week, there's been some quite dramatic events in the British domestic um, British domestic theatre with the sacking of the Home Secretary and the moving of the Foreign Secretary to the Home Secretary's position. But bringing back um, David Cameron, the former Prime Minister, Lord Cameron, as Foreign Secretary, um, who certainly back 10-odd years ago was... Uh, a, a, a much more nuanced voice. You could actually say more sympathetic voice. I mean, he famously wrote a piece in 2012 talking about Gaza being an open prison. Uh, and they also have brought back Andrew Mitchell as a foreign office minister, who's one of David Cameron's first appointments. Um, and actually, the latter has already indicated, um, because this is going back to something you were saying earlier, that Israel can be subject to rulings by the International Criminal Court. Uh, and that does make a break from Boris Johnson. Um, so do, do you think that, um, I mean, again, let's not over 
over egg the pudding as far as Britain's influence uh, is. But I mean, people in many parts of the world do still expect something a bit better from Britain. Do you think that, there, that this change in the Foreign Office um, and having somebody uh, like Cameron and somebody like Mitchell, both experienced people, will actually begin to shift policy post the war on Gaza? I think it's progress. It's hard to measure. It's, it's, it's brand new this week. But I think it's progress. Um, no disrespect to Mr. Cleverly, uh, but the, the Home Office is fitting for him. Uh, David Cameron um, was Prime Minister when I was uh, working in Jerusalem and I accompanied President Abbas a couple of times to the UK to meet him. Um, he knows the score and I think uh, he is indeed the man who said that Gaza is the biggest open prison in the world. Uh, I can't remember the precise date but um, possibly before he became Prime Minister mm. but nevertheless he did say it. And I think he has an awareness of, and, a, and, a, and if you like, a, uh, some credit uh, with, uh, with international leaders uh, in the Arab world uh, and in Europe. And he cultivated the US as, frankly, every British prime minister does um, in his time. So he has links into the Biden administration, into uh, President Macron's team, and so on. That's useful. Um, Andrew Mitchell is also a former cabinet minister. Um, he was secretary of state for um, international development, I think. And mm. he uh, is a friend of UNRWA. That's important. UNRWA will play a key role in the aftermath of this war. Uh, they have 30,000 staff. They have big financial problems. Uh, they were, before this war came, they were fearful that by November, they wouldn't have any money to pay staff mm. salaries. And mm. the 32, I think it's 32,000, mainly Palestinian staff in Gaza, the West Bank, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, could be left, you know, with nothing mm. and not doing their job. What's happened instead now is that I think 200 UNRWA staff have been killed yeah. by the bombardment. Uh, and... UNRWA is still trying to do its job. It will be using this very, very small amount of fuel to try to get stuff in to Gaza um, using UN vehicles. But the, the answer is bigger than that. And the answer yeah. has to be bigger than that. Yes. Now, back to your, your point about um, uh, Cameron and, uh, and Mitchell. Uh, Andrew Mitchell is on his way to Egypt now. Uh, David Cameron will be visiting the region. I don't quite know where he's going visiting the region next week. They are a double act. Uh, Mitchell will speak for Cameron in the House of Commons because Cameron will be uh, answering questions in the House of Lords. He's not an MP anymore. They're a good double act. I think it's important. And it's, it's an opportunity, I hope, to share thinking, not partisan thinking, cross-party thinking, about the way forward. Where do we go after this? What I would say is that some of the things that are being said by Israeli ministers, and this is the most right-wing Israeli administration we've ever seen, with Smotrich and Ben Gavir in office. Some of the things they're saying about, I think one of them has talked about a second Nakba. Others have talked about creating a big military buffer zone, therefore constraining the people of Gaza into an even smaller space than there is now. Gaza is the size of Greater Manchester. You imagine pushing people further and further towards the Mediterranean with a buffer zone. Others are talking about never reopening Kerem Shalom or Erez and enabling everything that can be brought in and taken out to happen through Rafa, which is not equipped for that. Mm. These things need to be challenged. They need to be challenged, maybe privately, but they need to be challenged. And I'm hopeful that Cameron and Mitchell, once they you know, get a grip on, on, the, on the facts, with the US, because the US is the biggest single influencer of Israel, is, uh, the US has Israel's back as 
Biden and Obama and Trump have always said. Um, but having Israel's back means believing in the continued existence of a state of Israel. It doesn't mean, in my opinion, believing in continuation of the occupation. And my last point on this is this. Israel often maintains that when it pulled settlers out of Gaza in 2005, somehow the occupation ended. It's not true. The occupation has been running since 1967 to date. It may mm. be a different form of occupation with soldiers all around Gaza rather than inside. But they do go in. They're in now. But the occupation has never gone away. It has never been given up. And the occupation under the Geneva Conventions, to come back to international law, means, and it's ironic, that Israel has a responsibility for the well-being of the citizens, which it is starving by the complete siege. So that needs to stop. And the ICC is one mechanism. The International Court of Justice will rule next year on the legality of the 56-year temporary occupation, which some in Israel, including, I think, Prime Minister Netanyahu, wish to see perpetuated, made permanent. But I come back to my earlier point. If the occupation is made permanent, then so is violence. Violence can only occur because it is not possible for one people, one government, one army to suppress the population of five, six, seven million Palestinians by force. It can't be done. And this tragic conflict proves it. Indeed. And, and, and looking at Gaza, even before uh, the current uh, war, life was becoming pretty untenable. I mean, water was becoming more salinated. I mean, you talked about the, the, the hundreds of... Uh, of trucks needed every day, just basically, and, and also the dependence of so many people on UNRWA, um, on effectively living on aid. 2.4 million people, many of them refugees, descended from refugees, living in this 30-mile strip of fairly arid land. And you have to then ask yourself, what is the condition going to be like after this latest round? of war with the so much destruction that has taken place some 50% of buildings we understand have been uh, have been blown up or or damaged and one of the you know as we're actually watching this violence unfold and these terrible things happening it's becoming quite apparent to a lot of people that there there doesn't appear to have been a, a great plan or if there was a plan perhaps it is the plan of netanyahu and those far right ministers you refer to in the military to effectively make um, Gaza uh, totally uninhabitable and to force its inhabitants into permanent tented cities in Sinai. So that extension of the Nakba you were talking about. So we've heard a pushback, uh, Vincent, from the United States, from the G7, saying this cannot go back to this. Um, there's been talk about the Palestine Authority administering, administering the, the ruins of Gaza after all of this. But you, unsurprisingly, have been doing some more forward thinking than all of that. And I think that you, in, in your letter today to the Prime Minister and to David Cameron, you began to set out what, you know, it's it, of course it can't be down to the Balfour Project to decide what's going to happen in, the, in, in Palestine, but your suggestions as to how it could be administered um, in the interim seems to be more forward-thinking than anybody else. Can you just let us know what your thoughts are on a post-war yep. Gaza? Yeah, I think in every tragedy, and this is a vast, vast human, human tragedy, there, there can be an opportunity. There can be an opportunity. There has to be hope. There has to be hope for ordinary Palestinians to be able to say to their kids, your life is going to be better than mine. That is a normal human family trait. It's what we do. We want our kids to have a better life than, than we do. Um, it's the same in Israel. It's the same in Israel. These people are, you know, human beings. And as we say, every life is sacred. Now, what does the future hold? I want the future 
to be a cessation of hostilities, uh, a ceasefire now, to enable all the things that we've talked about to happen that will safeguard lives and, uh, I hope, produce the release of those poor hostages. Um, what then? You're right about the damage. You are right about the fact that Gaza was pretty on its knees before the 7th of October. Largely, I would say, due to 15 or 17 years of blockade, not a complete siege, blockade mm -hmm. by Israel, an attempt to weaken politically Gaza and to keep Gaza distinct from the West Bank, divide and conquer. It's a very British imperial habit, the Roman habit from way back, and it's what Netanyahu did. Mm. Give you a couple of examples. Before uh, the uh, total uh, blockade, before the 7th of October, Netanyahu and his government prevented students, Palestinian students, civilians, from completing their studies in the West Bank. There used to be interchange. There used to be intermarriage. That stopped because it was not possible for the vast majority of Gazans to get into the West Bank and vice versa. With very few exceptions. Now, that needs to change. There needs to be linkage, not necessarily a road, not necessarily an air bridge, but a linkage between Gaza and the West Bank because Gaza is an integral part of the Palestinian entity, the Palestinian state, in my, in my opinion. Going back to your point about the, the, the possibility of, of inhabiting Gaza before the 7th of October, I remember in my time, uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, saying that the situation in Gaza was unsustainable. Mm. She said it in 2012, she said it 11 years ago. It mm. has been sustained, but it was on its knees. Likewise, there was a UN report called Gaza 2020, which said by 2020, Gaza will be uninhabitable yeah. in a civilized fashion, if you like, in a normal fashion, because of the salination of the water, because of the lack of trade, which meant unemployment at about 45, 50%. That, we can't go back to that. And I'm slightly heartened by people like Tony Blinken, who I think is doing a job, shuttle diplomacy in the Arab world with Israel, with the, the PLO in Ramallah, to try to say to Israel privately, more than publicly, but he's, he said some things in public as well, we can't go back to the status quo ante. We cannot go back to the way it was. Because the way it was, and Guterres was accurate about this, the way it was produced was the context for the terrorist act of the 7th of October. And if we don't learn the lesson of the 7th of October and the retaliation, the overkill by Israel subsequently, it will be repeated. Yes. Nobody, nobody should want that. Nobody should want that. Indeed. And thank you very, very much, Vincent. Before we go... Um... We can report, this will be old news, but uh, but here we are, uh, breaking news. Um, British members of Parliament have rejected a ceasefire um, for 125 against 293. 232 MPs didn't vote. Mm. Um, now, the Palestinian journalist Hamza Ali Shah has said 125 MPs out of 650 voted for a ceasefire in Gaza. A Palestinian child is murdered every 10 minutes. Nearly 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced, uh, a genocide enabled and supported by the bulk of our political class. Shame on them. Well, I just thought we'd put that in there because that's how a lot of people will feel. Um, but I think from what we've discussed tonight, there must always be hope. And I think the work that Sir Vincent and the Balfour Project has done particularly today, in mobilising that support, disappointing though that result may be, will not set things in stone. Um, and as, as, as we must believe, there must always be light at, 
the end of the tunnel. So thank you very, very much indeed, Vincent, for joining us this evening. Good luck with all of your work uh, going ahead. And uh, let's speak again soon and, and hope you, ho hopefully uh, in happier times. Thank you very much indeed. And can I thank uh, Palestine Deep Dive for giving me this opportunity and a very, a very last word, I regret. I regret that vote. It's predictable because the government would have whipped its own uh, majority to, to follow its, uh, its course. But I'm clear that the public demonstrations of concern by the writers of that letter, by the peace marchers, not the hate marchers, the peace marchers, of uh, Armistice Day and previous Saturday and next Saturday um, are having an impact. And I hope that the outcome, uh, just to finish, I hope that the outcome will be reconstruction of Gaza on a different basis with Palestinian agency. It's a point I should have made earlier, Palestinian agency. It isn't for us outsiders, particularly us, the ex-imperial power, to say to the Palestinians, who should run their country. It's not our job. It is for Palestinians to determine who they hold accountable, who they choose to lead them. They need elections, they need lots of things, but, and they're aware of that, but it isn't for us on the outside to, 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 to pontificate. In the meantime, immediately after this crisis, after this conflict, there is a need for a, a force to enter, led, I would say, by UNRWA, but a force, an international international force. When I use the word force, I, I mean not so much peacekeeping, but peacemaking force to ensure that the reconstruction of Gaza takes place and that the fear of Palestinians that this is an ongoing Nakba is not realized. Thank you very much indeed, Sir Vincent. And thank you also to all of you who are watching and uh, will be watching. And thank you to our team at Palestine Deep Dive, uh, to Omar in particular, to Alex and to our good friend Ahmed. Uh, and speak with you all soon. And thank you again, Sir Vincent. Thank you.